Welcome to Interruptions Podcast, where we have heartfelt and sacred discussions about our cultural, faith traditions, and community. We invite guests who are open and willing to share their journey and disrupt the silence on their personal and professional interruptions that have impacted their lives as it relates to our mental health. Kathy and I are passionate about every episode, every episode, and committed to providing actionable advice that you can apply today to reinvent yourself on your life journey and encourage you to develop a path towards healing. Our podcast today is titled Justice for All. This is our 20th podcast, and I am Reverend Odell. And I'm Kathy Patton, and we are your co-hosts. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Kathy, how are you? I'm well, Odell. I am well. We are back. <laughs> We're back. We we had a hiatus, mm-hmm. um, and I have to say thank you for giving me time to for self-care. And for our listeners who missed us, I thank you for returning and, and keeping us alive. But um, this is the month, the April is always a triggering month for me. So this was the fifth year of when my son was murdered. And with all the attention with the George Floyd trial, and every time you turned around on social media, on the news, you saw the shooting, the killing Mm -hmm. of young black men, one after the other. And it was triggering for me. It was, um, and I found myself getting depressed and getting angry and I had to disengage and check out of social media, check out from doing any work for interruptions because even though I was working on interruptions, it still reminded me of my son Mm -hmm. and I got sad. And that's when I called you and I said, I need a break. I, I have to check out. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's like having a car and you know that it's about to run out of gas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's exactly where I was. And yeah. I was exhausted and I needed some time off. So to our audience, our listeners, um, please excuse our absence. But that is what happened. I, you have to learn to self-care. Exactly. Exactly. We can't talk about it and then not exercise it. Right. And so I remember one of the things that would happen to me when I knew that I would have a session coming up for my daughter where we had to plan for her next year, I would always give myself that time to just, you know, for me to just not engage in a whole lot of conversation, just basically shut down for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But I also recognized and gave myself a certain period of time so that I wouldn't stay there because I think that's important. We don't want to stay in that period of depression or quietness. We want to make sure that we have a plan um, to come out of that that period. And so when we're saying this, we want to be careful that we make sure we say that to anyone in the audience. It is okay for self-care and to shut down and take that period of time, but just to have that plan and also have people to check in on you. There's that couple of people in your life that, you know, you were going to share that with. Listen, this is my time. Um, Just check in on me. Make sure I'm okay. 
uh, because that person will have been through that situation with you and knows what, what you need at self-care time period. Absolutely. Um, and the self-care is what I did. Just mm -hmm. checked out and people called and I, no response. I'm, I'm taking a break. And they yeah. understood and you understood right. and you gave me space. And now I'm back. I've got some rest. The sun is out today. I'm walking around. I'm going to pull my bike out later this week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's what leads us to this perfect timing with our guest. Yeah. Our, our two guests that we have with us today, um, our podcast is called Justice for All. You know, we're so often hearing the negative side of, of young black men and scared of mm -hmm. for our young black men. And here we have two young black men who are changing the world. And before we invite our guests in the room, I have to note that you are in a different background. You I am in a different background. I should have said you. that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I am actually in Georgia. So by the time this airs, I'll be back. But I am in Georgia. So I'm kind of in my son's space, his man cave space. And all of the fitted hats you see behind me are really personal to him. He, um, although some people would say, you know, I had that moment in my life, but for him, this moment represents his grandfather, who he so dearly loved. These are hats that regardless of the fact I told my father not to continually buy them, he brought them anyway. And so he displays them proudly because that is a memory that he wants to keep in his heart. And so I appreciate that. So I am proud to have these these hats. And I know you're and I know you're being grandma this week. I am. I am grandma Kit Kat. I am and I'm loving every minute of it. And so maybe I can start a GoFundMe or something to help bail me out when I kidnap her and bring her back to Connecticut because okay. that might be good. Just look out for me. If you see I, me I, on I the will. news. <laughs> I will. What a pleasant interruption to have. Pleasant interruption. It is. It is. So let's bring our guest into the room. We have Kurt Wesley and, Ch and Chaz Carmen. And they are, I, and I have to keep saying it, fellas, sorry, young black men who are organizing and changing the world. That's Welcome great. to Interruption Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Oh, that's uh, awesome. We love it. We love it. Odell, anytime you want to call me a young black woman, I'm all right with that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Listen, we, we are young, but they're younger than us. They are so younger, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to ask, um, Chaz, you're very difficult to get in contact with, but I'm glad we found you and we made contact. And I know you were on a Connect podcast, a, a, a Connect conference or something not too long ago. Uh, I'm not too sure. I do so many different. Uh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I saw your name there. I said, oh, there he goes. <laughs> so, Chaz, I would like to start with you. Um, this is, we're just going to have great conversation. So feel free to um, ask us questions as well. So our audience gets to know who Chaz is and how you started Ice the Beef. Tell us um, what adult decision land happened in your life that landed you in the role that you're in today? Well, um, Ice the Beef was actually started by our founder, Daryl Alec. Um, Daryl Alec is our founder. And uh, back in the day, he was a big time drug dealer and he had found God long story short, and changed his life. His father's name was Green Eye Dave. And if you're from New Haven and you're old school, 
Most people know who Green Eye Dave was. Um, but he changed his life and he started Ice the Beef. And instead of, it's like Al Capone or Bumpy Johnson just stopping in the midst of the height of their career and telling the group that we are no longer selling drugs, we are no longer doing anything negative, we are now going to feed and help our community. I also had, um, you know, was a drug trafficker and et cetera. And then I found God uh, about 13 years before he did. And through my travels finding God, I found a purpose. See, a lot of young men in our neighborhoods, um, and this is interruptions, you know, um, a lot of young men in our neighborhoods, we say we don't, we're, we, we don't, you know, we're not afraid to die. We say we don't give an F about dying because we don't have a purpose. Once you find a purpose, it gives you a reason to live. Then you don't want to die. So for me, my purpose was, was that I bumped into a job where, uh, you know, these Mr. A from the YMCA and Mr. Kyle's who's even troop took a, took a chance on me and I bumped into working with kids in the midst of my ridiculousness and found out that these young men that I were working with was more important than any money I can make, anything I can do. And that's with God, that's what changed my life. And then Daryl found me out about 13 years later. He had started Ice to Beef already and found me out and asked, would I come into Ice to Beef? And I said, sure. But in the beginning, they were doing bereavement. Um, and they were the first responders to murders. They were the first to do this kind of work. First responders to murders at the hospital with the family. If the loved one died, they were able to get everything needed for the funerals. Because, of course, if you're in our neighborhoods, you don't have life insurance on your children, let alone have a life insurance on a 40-year-old. So they were um, doing a lot of bereavement. Well, I became a youth service guy, meaning I'm trying to save the kids' lives. So when he asked me to come into the org, I said, I would be a youth director and I would create programs for you. He said, no, be the president. I said, well, if I'm the president, then you have to allow me to do what I do. And what I do is I save children. I save kids who want to quit and um, think they you know, have no way out. And he said, sure, take over and do what you do. So we came out of bereavement and went right into youth services and started a bunch of programs and started helping kids every day. That's that awesome. is awesome. That's awesome. I have to say, Chaz, I, initially I saw a lot of the signs that you post and I kept seeing them, ice the beef, ice the beef. And so I finally stopped one day because they were everywhere. It was like mass media everywhere. And I finally stopped one day to really read what it was talking about. And because initially I just, you know, you pass it by. And I said, there's something to these signs. No matter where I went, I saw one. So when I read the story behind it, I said, this is marvelous, wonderful. And you knew that it was someone who really had a passion for helping the youth and it was so needed. So I appreciate that. Thank you very That's much. a wonderful story. So, so Chaz, I have to ask you um, now, I, maybe because I watched, I, I watched, it's too much TV and mafia movies. So when um, they want, when the crime family wants to go legal and everybody else doesn't, there's always a takeover. <laughs> there's always someone that says, no, I want to stay in the game or you're in this game for life. So how did the rest of your network respond to we're no longer selling drugs and we're going to go legal and we're going to give back to our community? Well, well, you know, uh, what I was doing, um, it was an easy stop for me because I just got rid of the phone. But for Daryl, who like, you know, was like Bumpy Johnson type of thing, you know, of course you have people who probably, you know, really didn't want to stop. But what can you do when you're that kind of person? Right. Uh, if he says he's stopping, nothing you can do about it. 
You know, so I believe that, you know, some people, a lot of people were happy that he was changing his life and some people probably mad because his money uh, not coming in anymore. Um, but it was definitely, I believe for him, it was definitely really mixed emotions um, and making that decision. But end of the day, you know, everybody loved it because he was changing his life and he was trying to help the community now. So you got to, if you're from the neighborhood, you got to go with that. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Kurt. Please share. Same question. What what adult decision for you um, landed you in this role of organizing with Connect? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you again for having me here today. And um, I really appreciate you all talking about uh, self-care and how important that is to really identify and really, you know, plug, you know, unplug um, when necessary. So uh, that's completely are relevant. Um, so for me, you know, I like to say that my story in organizing started back in 2008 um, in the month of March. And I remember that because it was a nice spring day and trees were uh, coming in, the birds were chirping. And um, on this day, then candidate for President Barack Obama was given a speech on race and race equity in America. You know, he was in the middle of a controversy in his campaign with his former pastor, Jeremiah Wright, um, saying some comments that, you know, really had his campaign in uh, hot water. And he was given this speech in Philadelphia um, to try to quell some of those concerns. And I was in Bridgeport, Connecticut um, in my bedroom uh, with that speech on, not really because I cared about Obama or politics or anything at that time, but it just happened to be the last channel that was on TV. And I turned it on as background noise as I bagged up a pound of weed in my room. So I was here with all the makings of a drug factory in front of me doing what I was doing as a 23-year-old felon. I had the weed, I had the bags, I had the scale. But I had this speech playing in the background. And at some point, what was being said in the speech started to actually resonate with me. You know, um, you know, like when you have something playing in the background, you catch in phrases and words here or there. So what Obama was saying to me that day uh, on, on that speech that day really started to, you know, impact me. And um, if you if you want, you can look it up. It's a more perfect union is the name of that speech. And, um, you know, so I started listening to what he was saying. And what I heard was a black man. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard a black man talking about black issues and how um, they were impacting black communities. And I really started to look <clears throat> at the screen. And what I saw was a black man, a black man that kind of looked like me. Uh, you know, and he had power that wasn't based in the normal power that I was used to in my surroundings, which was money, pop money, violence and things of that nature. So I really just kind of on that day looked at what that black man was doing and what the black man in that room was doing and really decided that I needed to do more as a black man. You know, Barack Obama was running for president, really running well. Um, so. I like to mark that day as a real turning point in my adult life because that and a couple other things led to me going back to school, 
going back to college, um, I had went to uh, UConn uh, when I first graduated high school, but I uh, ended up losing my housing first semester and, you know, then ended up in a different kind of college for a couple other semesters, if you know what I mean. Um, but that uh, that year I was led to go back to school and started a student club on campus at the local community college called the Community Action Network, or CAN for short, because Obama's slogan was, yes, we can. And through that club, um, you know, it just led to me getting an interest in organizing and, and um, you know, community, and then ultimately led me to um, working on different campaigns in various states and brought me back to Connecticut, uh, where I've landed with Connecticut, uh, Connect for the past year. So that's really like what has led me here. And that's the decisions or the turning point that led me to this point. Thank you. That's awesome. So you both have very different organizations that you started, but what do you say to people when they say, what about the stronger organizations, the ones that are already organized and have that respected history? So I'll reference NAACP and Poor People Campaign. So why did you choose not to take all of your energy and put it into established organizations um, and then start your own? Well, ours was already started by our founder, but um, to come in and take the helm, uh, a good leader always um, understands that when you take another leader and allow a leader to do what he does, right? Um, and I believe what made us so different was that we were bad boys turned good, right? People who, you know, you discounted turned good. And what we're talking about is we want to work with the kids. You know, we in our organization, every kid is at risk. This is how we put our stance on it. Every kid has an opportunity to make a bad decision that can affect the rest of their life. Charles, when you, I'm sorry, when you say kids for our audience, can you give us an age group? Because I don't want someone to think you're talking about a toddler. No, so we, we work with uh, from fifth grade to sophomores in college, right? Um, for us, uh, youth services is not a nine to five job. It is a rest of your life thing. And this is where I'm going with this uh, process. Like in our org, being bad boys turn good, we don't have any red tape. You already know we made mistakes. So we don't have to have this red tape uh, that a YMCA has or that a school system has or that. No, we don't have any of that because we're doing it out of the love. We're doing it for free. We're just doing it to do it. So our organization was different because we were able to say um, we can work with any youth and, and be ourselves while we do that. So like I was saying, uh, any kid is at risk. And our, and our, what, we, what, we, uh, what we say is any kid is at risk because they can make a bad decision, but the high-risk ones have already made bad decisions. And now how do we get that group to start to make positive decisions? It's one thing that you start early, um, you know, like 10th, fifth, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, start early. And then it's another thing when you get them in the mid-ground where they're in high school and be able to still uh, get them to start making right decisions and um, goal setting and et cetera, and get them going forward in their life. Then once you get to college, we still got to be there. Because the first year is the toughest. Everybody calls them crying, you know. So you got to be there till they graduate out of there and, and just stay with them. So what we did was we're able to do more things because we don't have the red tape that many other organizations have. 
And, you know, I can't go, uh, you know, social workers can't get attached and psychologists can't do this. And, you know, um, but we can't, you know, the things that they can't do, we were able to do. And, and you know, when you're not getting paid, you don't have that uh, extra thing in the back. You saying, you know, well, I'm, I'm out the clock. I'm off the clock. We're never off the clock because there ain't no clock, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So um, you're, you're, you're working 24 seven because they, these children become our children. And I, I become father to many kids. And that's how we look at it. These are our children. Every kid in these neighborhoods, every kid in these school system, they're our kids. No matter who you live with or what just kind of services you're getting. Chaz, do you all work in a particular neighborhood, a particular region, the New Hallville or New Haven or Westville? No, our, our kids are from all over the city. All and over the city. Now we're also in Waterbury, so we're starting off in Waterbury also. So our kids are from all over the city, different neighborhoods, um, different nationalities, genders, non-genders. You know, um, in our organization, we're all one human race. So we have all these ethnicities, Asian, white, all that stuff, but in our organization, we're just one human race. And that's how we look at it. All right. So Kurt, can you answer this same question? Yeah, so, um, you know, working with Connect, I, I chose to work with Connect really because I felt like it was a unique opportunity for me to um, expand my skill set and really broaden my horizon, particularly with working with um, more white people, you know, frankly. Um, you know, I spent 10 years in politics, um, managing campaigns and field programs in um, various different states in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic that was really, um, that was really uh, based in urban areas. So when I came back in Connecticut, decided that I didn't wanna do uh, politics anymore uh, or on that level in terms of managing campaigns. I wanted to work for a broad-based organization that dealt with people that were of some kind of faith tradition. And locally, um, I saw that congregations organized for a new Connecticut, or Connect for short, um, was able uh, to do that kind of work. So um, when, I, when I had the opportunity to join as a fellow initially, um, what I saw was an opportunity to really uh, build a skill set um, that I haven't had before. Um, and that's being uh, dynamic in a way that I could be cross community, cross culture, and really be able to, um, in many ways, humanize the black experience for um, white liberals who might not necessarily have the direct contact with black people or people of color who um, the, whose issues they care so deeply about. Um, so I saw an opportunity to uh, bring a skill set to an organization that um, needed it. And with a group of people that, um, a demographic that I don't necessarily have the, had the professional experience of working with in the past. So I thought it was a good opportunity. Um, and I also believe that for, you know, communities of color to really uh, get the advancement and support and the, and build the power that we need. Um, we can't do it in the silo. We, you know, we got to be able to cross communities and, 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 and different demographics. So I saw an opportunity to do that as well. 
All right. Uh, Kurt, uh, just in case you don't know, Kathy is also a member of Mount Airy Baptist Church. She, oh, uh, hey. She, she, she grew up in at, at, at Mount Airy. I did. <laughs> okay. All right. I did. I when, did. when Kurt came on, because I'm on the executive team, um, mm -hmm. it's for Connect. I've been with Connect for, for a very long time. Yeah. And when I saw that we had a intern, Kirk Wesley, the name just sounded like a white guy. So it's like, yeah, okay, we got another white guy, you know. And he was emailing me saying, can we do a one-on-one? -on -one? He introduced himself, um, you know, I'm here as an intern and hoping to be hired. So I wanted to find out if you and I can do a one-on-one. -on -one. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, it's, you know, that's my job, gonna do what we need to do. And he said, do you wanna do a Zoom? So I'm like, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's do what I have to do. I'm on the executive team. And he pops up and I'm looking at him and all I could say is, you're a black man. <laughs> <laughs> And he's looking at me like, like uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, beard, you know, like, whoa, that no. is funny. and, you know, he's talking and we're going through the one on one. He's telling me about his story. And I'm saying, you're a real black man, you know, so, oh you know, and you know, and you know what I mean when I say real black man, but um, <laughs> it was a great conversation to uh, realize that we had a young black male organizer and connect. And I want to talk about, you know, we'll talk more about some of the challenges, but before we talk about your challenges, talk to us about what's some of your proudest moments. I, I know this Black Lives Matter, we're going to get to it. We can't help but to get to it. But tell us something that you've done and your, you know, with connect and with ice to be that you are proud of. Your mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, um, you know, I, I, I think that I mean I've done a, I've done a couple of things that I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, but I think for me, like holistically, um, you know, I think that what I'm most proud of is the fact that I've been able to, um, you know, agitate on a level that's causing the organization to, uh really uh, reevaluate and think about some things and, and how we're approaching um, our work, you know what I mean? So um, I, I'm proud of the fact that I'm forcing uh, folks to think about things a bit deeper, um, think about how we are approaching our work um, differently and um, forcing people to uh, confront um things that you can't really uh erase simply because of the work that we're engaged in um okay. so you know i think that most importantly that's for me being able to agitate on a level that's causing us as an organization to be reflective and and then be redemptive is something that i'm most proud of so kurt you may be agitating but what challenges are you having when you agitate and somebody looks at you and realize that you're a young person mm. <laughs> who's agitating the system? Does your age come into conflict with people that you're working with? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a level of age, but, you know, I mean, just the, the context, again, of being a black man, right? You know, I think that sometimes when you're in white spaces or predominantly white spaces and, you know, like I'm a full black man, as you said, like with beard and all, um, sometimes that agitation can be perceived a different kind of way. So, you know, for me, um, there has been um, a, a, a challenge to find the nuance of how to be able to um, create this agitation without falling into uh, the context of the angry black man or um, being someone that is aggressive or something like that. So there has been challenges and it has had to force um, tough conversations and, and processes and how we uh, go about things as an organization. Um, but, you know, I, I think that those challenges are well worth it for the growth um, that will come out of it. So, yeah, I mean, there are challenges, but, you know, we get through that. That's just no, that's nothing. Cool. Chaz? So uh, I have a lot of great moments and the, the most happiest moments to me are when you have a youth who um, uh, is in foster care and parents have not been around due to having to leave the country or et cetera. And you take that kid and you work with that kid and then that kid's getting to UConn. You know, having youth who are going through trauma and then you see some of our kids doing speeches and you're like, yo, this gotta be, uh, you know, and you never believe the experience the kids are having. So our, our, a lot of my things are just watching these daily, weekly and monthly goals being met and then you get to that point where all these three years or four years in high school, we've been trucking along in tears and et cetera. And today is the day you walk into school and we move you into school and just to see your face and the happiness on you as you go into college or you go to the military or whatever goals that we set when you accomplish those goals are the most really happy moments um, mm -hmm. for me. And uh, like I said, we do this for no money. We just do it to do it. And, and when you see the light bulb go off, right, and you see that, you know, all that work we put in, you're starting to guess why COVID was so traumatic for a lot of our teenagers, especially when you work four years to get to prom and to get to graduation and it's gone, yeah. right? You can't experience yeah. that moment. That was a tough for a lot of our teenagers uh, that year. But those small goals are the most uh, important because it makes a big difference in the rest of your life. Um, and on the other hand, uh, I think some of the hardest things is to do is that we really try to save everybody, right? And, and just figuring out how to do that. So now when we align with, uh, you know, in gun violence, you have to also attack the causes, the root causes, which is systematic racism, which is bad decisions, which is, you know, so we start opioid addiction domestic violence. So we started to attack voter suppression. We started to attack jobs, right? We got to attack all these things because there's so many things that can cause gun violence. So we put our hands in everything. That's why you may see a, a march for jobs or a march for voter registration or a march for uh, domestic violence um, because we are attacking all the issues that can spur gun violence. So we align ourselves with opiate uh, addiction groups, domestic violence groups, and become family and become an arm of each other. And we work together to make the change happen. Okay. That's awesome. 
So, so, so Chaz, you have, um, this is a biblical question now. So mm -hmm. in the Bible, you have Paul, we have Saul, who's actually uh, going out killing Christians. And on the road to Damascus, he has a intervention with God mm -hmm. and he changes his ways. He's blind for three days, changes his ways. And now the people still see him. They still see the guy who was doing harm, but now overnight he has changed his ways. What was that experience like for you in your community, your age group, where you're on the, I'm doing harm in my community, but then you flip it and now you're doing good in your community. What was that perception to get people to trust you? But, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to even add on to that, too, because I was going to ask Chaz and Kurt this question, that aha moment. What did that moment look like? What is the morning after look like? Because you said that you found God. And so you woke up one way that morning and then the next morning you you woke up differently, your thought process. And then, Kurt, for you, too you weren't paying attention to the speech. And then all of a sudden, now you're paying attention to the speech. So in addition to what Odell said, what is that next day, next moment, next steps look like for both of you? So um, the moment that I really realized I was making a difference was a two-part piece. One, uh, I had 20 kids in the YMCA getting honors. I had 20 kids coming there every day to be around me wasn't because of the facility. It was because I was in there and I was, the thing we were doing in the game room was so fun because I turned the game room to this extravagant, it was smiles in the, in the hood. So you, so you had a good time when you came in there and kids would come to every day. I went from having five kids in a room to almost 30 kids in the room um, every day. So it was two part piece for me was the aha moment was one, one day I didn't come to work. And when that day I didn't come to work, I, I came in the next day and it was like the world was over. And these kids were like, where were you? Why weren't you here? Um, I started, I, I went and bought all the new video games. I started doing tournaments. I started doing all these things. And one game that we had was called No Mercy. It was a wrestling game back in the day on Nintendo 64. And I gave every guy a wrestler. I was Miss McMahon. I bought all the belts. We would have matches every night, and I didn't come one day. So I came back the next day. It was like the world was over. And the kids were like, well, we almost stole a car. We were going to smoke weed. We were going to do this. It was like all these bad things was going to happen because I wasn't there. Mm. So I said, I said, so it, it, I said, so why would, why, why would you do that? Well, because you wasn't here. And I'm like, so you're saying if I come here every day, you're going to be here every day? Yeah. Then I'm not going to miss another day. That's very simple. Makes sense to me. If I come here every day, you're going to be here. You're not going to be in stolen cars. You're not going to be doing drugs. You're not going to be. So I'll be here every day for that. The second aha moment for me was as I'm doing these things with these kids and I started to get kids to get honors in, and uh, I made something called the Wall of Fame. And I had 20 something honors from these kids in the tray in the hill and tribe in the ville. I had all these honors up there. So my, my, my boss, Mr. A, called me in the room and said, you know, you're receiving an award. For, um, for the YMCA's of America, Building Strong Kids of America. And I'm like, what? I go to this black tie dinner. They give me this plaque. I'm standing in front of all these people. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I, I just did something. What, what, did, I, what did I do? So th these are the moments I started to realize, wow, I'm actually good at doing something. And it's a good thing. And I'm making change happen. So that, that was really, really 
my aha moments. And to go back to the other question, um, in our organization, like I said, we're one human race. So we have prayer vigils, but we have Jewish people, Muslims, people just pray, um, and the universe and her and all that, right? And because there's only one creator, however you look at it. Um, so, you know, together we bring all those entities. But for me, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. And I, when I do interview people and things like that, and you come into our org, I talk, I, I talk to you about this one model. And the model is how Jesus lived. You don't have to be a Christian or whatever to talk about this, but the character, the person, the what he was doing and loving everybody and forgiving everybody. And that's, that's the model of what we do as individuals. If you hear anybody in our org speak, this is how they talk about one human race, about everybody loving each other, helping each other, and being there for each other, no matter what, and forgiveness and things like that. So that model of how Jesus um, was living to help and to love is what we utilize in every our everyday missions. Okay, wonderful, awesome. That's an awesome answer. Kurt, how about you? Yeah, um, I think for me, like the aha moment really didn't come for like, you know, maybe about another year or so, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I I listened, I heard that speech, but, you know, I finished bagging up <laughs> and I sold what I had to sell and read up a couple more times. Um, but I think that once I really like, you know, actually got enrolled in school and started the club. And then I started to see that uh, students were coming and students wanted to be like involved in the community. You know, it was just an idea like, hey, let's get some students together to do community service, things like that. Um, and when I saw that, like people were responding to it, people were showing up on a Friday when they didn't have to, to volunteer at a school or a nursing home or something like that. Um, I was like, wow, you know, I, that's when I, that's, that's a moment when I started to really think like, wow, this, there's, there's something that I'm doing here that like I'm helping other people mm -hmm. to do, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, so I would think like, that's a time when I really recognize that, um, you know, this, th this is a gift. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, what Chaz is doing as well is like it's a it's a gift that, um, you know, not everyone can do. So that that was when I, when I recognized that. Thank you. So, oh, go ahead, Kathy. No, that's OK. I was I was going to ask you. So obviously, um, and when you're when you're talking to the young people, they're seeing what's going on in the news. And so. Um, talk a little bit about the conviction uh, regarding George Floyd and Officer Trauvin. Um, how did how did even the conversation? Because you we would we were in COVID, and so you're still meeting with your group. So even the conversation and Chaz, I appreciate you say that we're all one nation. But what does that conversation look like when you actually saw that videotape? And and walk us through the initial seeing the videotape to actually hearing the conviction for both of you. Uh, well, it was, I was ecstatic. Um, 
at, at, at the you know conviction. Um, it was kind of you know static, but you know this stuff happens all the time. That's one instance. Okay, that guy went to jail, but there's there's many people throughout history who didn't get this opportunity, you know, to uh, lock up the officer who, who did this heinous thing to a person, and it's still happening all over the country. So it's like a yay, you know, okay, but you know, we have a lot, a long, long way to go um, in this moment with the youth who are in the inner city, um, who are growing up under looking at these things, you know, trying to explain um, these moments. Uh, we don't explain our moments and you are supposed to do this to the police department. No, the cop's supposed to be the, the good person. <laughs> so you should have to do any of that stuff. You know, mm -hmm. they should be the ones taking community classes based on how to interact with us. Right. So our conversations are a little different. It's more about, you know, making positive decisions, making the right decisions for yourself and continuing to make the right decisions. And then if you encounter officers in that light, you continue to make the right decisions. Right. And but understanding that there are just some bad people mm -hmm. out there. And how do we change all that? How do we make these changes happen? And what we found out in Ice Beef was that we got to focus on the younger generation. You know, the older people, they're going to do what they want to do because they're older. But the kids still have an option. So if we can teach positive decision making. This is how you change systematic racism, police brutality, gun violence, domestic violence, all these negative things in America. How do you change that? By teaching the younger generation that you got a choice to picking up a gun and shooting somebody. That's a choice. Being a racist, once you get older, it's a choice. That police officer made a choice. So these youth inherit all of this. Those are teachable moments for us to say, hey, if you want to be a police officer, you can be a police officer. But you use your choices, your decisions wisely. Because you can choose not, he could have chose to get off of that person. He could have chose to get off of George Floyd. He chose not to. He made a decision. So we really, really weigh heavily on how do we teach the younger generation, no matter what ethnicity or whatever you are, how do we teach you that every day these choices you're making to go to class or whatever, they matter. Your mm -hmm. voice matters. So we focus on that. We focus on your voice mattering for young, young people. And we focus on your choices that you're making throughout your day. Because those choices is what got George Floyd killed. He chose mm -hmm. that. Yeah. You know, so if we can change the younger generation choices, a lot of these things will just stop. You know, I appreciate your reflections and your comments to be, I mean, they, they're resonating with me a lot today. Um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, when we opened, this is the fifth year um, that I'm dealing with the, the murder of my son. And I have to call it what it is because that's what it was. But when it started, what happens in our, in our struggle of mental health and, and trauma is that when you're walking with God, you tend to question God. I, question God, angry at God. Why did you let this happen? Why did you, God, kill my son? Why did you let my son die? And it took four years for me to be able to say and come to understanding in my faith that God didn't let my son die. There is a person who pulled the trigger who made a bad decision. Mm -hmm. They made the decision to kill my son but God saved his soul. 
So it took me to look at God differently and my relationship and my faith differently to not blame God because the crime that had knocked on our door and stole my son's life and stopped blaming God. So I appreciate your language when you talk about choices mm-hmm. because that That's is something amazing. that is something that when we are rest, when we are the ones that are dealing with the loss and we're walking with God. God's the first one we blame. God's the first one we walk away from is the faith. And God, why did you let this happen? Why didn't you do something? And essence, God did. Mm-hmm. God saved his soul. So I appreciate your language saying the words of making choices. Mm-hmm. If I may, we have to understand that God gave us something that I love, that I love, but I also don't like it. I'm just like to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Free will. <laughs> what is that? Right. He gave us free will, which means he gave us the opportunity to make a choice. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so Derek Chauvin, if someone had maybe taught this person a little differently in the upbringing, maybe he wouldn't have been a racist or whatever he was that made him make that decision. You know, so that's what we're instilling our kids, no matter what you are, that you have a choice to make. And I talked to UNH criminal justice students. And tell them the same thing. You got a choice if you're going to be a cop. You got a choice if you're going to be a lawyer. You got a choice in this field to make the right decision when it it comes in front of you. It's a choice. Yeah. So, Kurt, can you respond to that question as well? Yeah. So, um, you know, in regards to George Floyd and uh, the Chauvin verdict, you know, um, I think in in as it relates to my work, it's it's been very interesting. Um, you know, because when the George Floyd stuff first happened, you know, just like you know the nation uproar and all the things that were happening, the protests and the marches and things like that. Um, you know, I think that it's interesting watching how white people respond to that, right? You know I mean? They're, Connect is a diverse organization with a lot of um, multi-race and ethnic group congregations. But if we're gonna be honest, like there's, there's a lot of mostly white people, right? So I think that what we did, we had a, um, we had like a, a, a moment of reflection um, as an organization, uh, and had folks co- join a Zoom call just to kind of really uh, reflect or have a moment of silence. And we had over like 300 people jump on that call. Um, but I also feel that because of how trendy this is, so to speak, mm-hmm. like, we can like particularly white people because black folks live in this every day right particularly white folks white liberals can tend to um you know use kind of things like marches or gatherings as a substitute to uh really undoing racism and systemic oppression so there's always an external response, right? You know, in terms of marches and gatherings, and we did that. Um, 
But my challenge, you know, internally is that how are we uprooting um, white supremacy? How are we getting the knees off of black people collectively as an organization? Right. So we can be hyper focused on George Floyd and Derek Chauvin or what I, I don't even know these people's name. I don't know this guy's name. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Right. You know what I mean? Okay. I, I've never watched a video um, because, you know, I've seen black death up close. I don't need to see a video of it on social media. But my thing is like, how do we address not this specific instance, but how do we address the systemic oppression that has created this system for generations, for over 400 years? And I need white folks to get there. You know what I'm saying? So Derek Chauvin getting found guilty, that's great. It's perfect. Excellent. You know what I mean? But I think that, you know, George Zimmerman is still out here, the cop who killed Tamir Rice. It's, it's all types of different things that can be like, yeah, but, you know, so I think that, you know, the reactions I think have been typical, um, but I'm I'm trying to, like I said earlier, agitate on a deeper level for people to do more internal work within themselves. And like, what does that verdict actually mean practically to, to you in your day-to-day life? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if you're not, if you're not a person of color. Yeah. Ch- Chaz, I have a question for you. Um, and I need you to be as honest with me as you possibly can. My struggles that I've been having this month with this whole George Floyd trial on is that I've been watching and I'll say very clear New Haven, my community, um, watch the trial watch the case and demand and 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 social media post that hope the police don't hide evidence and you want everybody to testify and to come out and tell the truth and then when i look at my case my son's case the three men who were in the car and the mothers that are in this community that helped hide the evidence that people who look like me lied to the community. I mean, they lied to the police about what they saw and what they knew. And to this day, the three men who were in that car and who they told what they did still won't say who pulled the trigger. So my pain has been this double jeopardy or this, this, this a double standard that we want white folks to do it when a police is killing us. But when it's happening in our own community, we have different standards. Why help, help me to understand why, why is that? And I know, let me be clear. It happens in every culture, mafia, Italians, Asians, it happens. And I, and I understand that, but to help me this month, can you, that's my question for you. Morality is gone. Morality is gone. The village mentality is gone. I don't care what kind of poverty you lived in in the 70s and the 60s and the 80s and some through the 90s, but you couldn't cuss Miss Millie out next door. 
You understand? Um, because we knew each other in the neighborhood. If your kid spoke some way to somebody, oh, that kid was getting in trouble. And Ms. Millie probably going to get you and then tell your mama and your mama will get you too. Right? That, that's gone. You know, that, that uh, where we, these are all our children in the community. That's gone. Right? And we have to get back to that mentality in our neighborhoods that we all are one people. Right? And not, if, if, if someone dies on your block, we think we're being a snitch by saying something, but what, what's a snitch? You got to understand what that really is. You got to be part of the crime to be the snitch. You ain't part of the crime. You're just being a good citizen, right? But it's the mentality. We're not even teaching our kids moral values anymore. Look at a lot of our young ladies. Right now, our young ladies are the ones that's really uh, the tough ones out here. We think of the guys, but oh, the young ladies are really, really tough in the communities. And that's because we have changed the way we raise our children. It is a systematic thing also that you can't, you know, talk to your kid a certain way or et cetera. But we as a people have to become accountable in our neighborhoods, in any neighborhood you live in. Why do affluent communities have less violence? Because they will call the cops when you pull up, right? But in our neighborhood, we uh, allow things to happen so many times. And then, and then if we even know we're not going to say anything, it could be from fear, you know? But we have to get to a point where we hold ourselves accountable. We can't blame the mayor. We can't blame the police department. We have to hold ourselves accountable. And the ones who are doing the shooting, the ones who are selling the drugs, I hold myself accountable for the drugs I sold. I hold myself accountable for the mistakes I made. I made those mistakes. It's my fault. Mm-hmm. And once we get to that point where we start holding ourselves accountable, our children accountable, you know, I, I know a mother that, uh, you know, will, has some sons that be wild and she let them know, I'm going to call the cops on you. If you know this stuff, you know, and that's the kind of things we have to do. We can't sit here and hide our kids and stuff. We have to, you know, teach our kids in a certain way. So that way our kids make positive decisions. And then when these things happen in our neighborhoods, we got to hold ourselves accountable. We got to police our own neighborhoods because the cops going to shoot us. So if we don't start policing our own neighborhoods, who's going to do it? But that's the thing. Where's the village mentality? Where, Where has that gone? Where's the moral teachings uh, 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 of our kids in the communities. Like your daughter is a queen. You should act this way. You know, you should be doing this and you should not be doing that. That's gone. And some reasons is systematic situations, the single parent household. It's so many things that got us to where we are. But at some point, we got to become accountable and step up and say, enough is enough. Let's, let's make a change happen. And that's how we do it. Back to the morality, back to the village mentality, help each other, love each other. And, and, and that's the way to make change happen. But we're in America, mm-hmm. dog eat dog world. Yeah. That's how you grow up, and your your girls are gonna be tougher than the guys just to go to high school. Yeah. So. Yes. And I I need to make the correction that it wasn't the George Floyd trial because George Floyd was not on trial. Um, the police officer was. Um, I just want wh- whoever's listening saying he wasn't on trial. Yes, I know that George Floyd was not on trial. That the police officer was. So please correct my mistake. Thank you, um, Chaz. That yeah. was a good answer for me. Yeah. So Kurt, um, for you, one of one of the things that we we talk about a lot, and usually we will ask all of our guests this is um, 
Odell might, you know, Odell and I might go out for an evening and, and we're sitting and we're relaxing and just having conversation. And then, you know, we might be in a crowd with people and someone come along and start to talk to Odell on the side and then talk to her as a minister. Here she is just wanting to be hang out with the girls, right? She just <laughs> she just wants to be Odell. And then, you know, and then she finds herself then, okay, now I have to put on my minister hat. Not that she ever takes it off, if you understand what I mean, but there is that moment where it's like, whew, okay, I can just relax because I'm around uh, good friends, right? So for you, does that happen to you as well, Kurt, that you could be somewhere and then all of a sudden, you know, you just want to hang out. You just want to have a good time. And all of a sudden now, like we just did, we're asking you about the, uh, <laughs> you know, about George Floyd and, and how you felt about the trial. But, the, you know, what's going on what, in our neighborhoods? There's the issues in our neighborhoods. But what are you doing about it? And what is Connect doing about this? So do you find yourself being challenged with that when you just need that moment, like you said, to just unplug? Yeah, most definitely. All the time. Um, so yeah, I find myself in that position all the time. Um, and you know, it's largely because, um, you know, I, I know in no way compare this to being a minister, um, of the gospel or in any way or a clergy member, but you know, th this is, this is work like you can't take off really. Like you can't, you know, Chaz said he didn't show up one day and you know, the kids were going to make some decisions based off of that. Right. You know, so, um, you know, similar, it's like, you know, this kind of stuff, no matter where you are, you're on, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, um, unless you're out of town or something like that, most times when I go out, um, I, I have the expectation that I'll see someone, who I know or may know of me or know of the work that I'm doing. And there might be some kind of work about a question or conversation about politics, campaigns, organizing a local issue that's happening, a national issue that's happening. Um, I just expect it at this point um, because largely because I don't think people are doing that to be a bother to me per se, but people are in need, mm -hmm. right? You know what I'm saying? And people have questions and need answers and need support. And this type of leadership is servant leadership. You know what I mean? So I need, I, I would love to have time to myself and unplug and things like that. But I also know that, you know, I'm, I'm serving, you know, and I can't choose when I have to serve. You know what I mean? Sometimes service just happens um, in the moment. So, yeah, you know, I try to handle as best as I can, but I definitely uh, get caught in those moments many times. Can I, can I answer that a little bit? You sure yeah. can. <laughs> also, in my field, working with children over 20-something years, a lot of them are adults. I work with a lot of kids. You can't ever take Mr. C off in the neighborhoods or anywhere in New Haven because you're always working. Once you see the kid, you got to stop, have a conversation, talk to him. See random kids, stop, have a conversation, talk to them. And for our ministers on the call, I often tell ministers and churches this, you know, and uh, understand what I mean by this. Uh, the church is the first nonprofit. <laughs> the church is the creator of the nonprofit. Feeding people, helping people, saving our neighborhoods. <laughs> that is the church job, <laughs> in my opinion, right? That's what the church is supposed to be doing. 
and this is my ministry. And I tell people that do all that, that that's Kirkman. You know, we do different ministries. My, I got a street ministry going on. Do I preach about God all the time? No. But saving people and helping people and this, that's my, that's my ministry work that I'm doing. So, you know, when you definitely are a minister, it's, you can never take it off. Especially then don't go outside. Cause you know, if someone has an issue, they got to be able to come up to you and get some prayer at that moment, right then and there, the hat must go back on. And so uh, the church is the first nonprofit. They are the first people to ever do this kind of work. And we're just uh, in your shadow. But what happens is in these days, the church started to become into our shadows. And that's where the problem lies. The church, I, I go and tell preachers all the time, pastors all the time, you can't sit in the church and wait for the bad people to come here. <laughs> One person will, but they're not going to walk in. So, But you got to walk outside to the addicts. You got to walk outside to the dealers. You got to walk outside to the guys. With, you got to walk. If you want to get them in the church, you got to walk outside the church to the neighborhood. You cannot wait for us to come in. We will one by one. But if you want to get the masses, you got to be out in the neighborhood. You got to be walking the streets. That's awesome. Both both of you, just I appreciate your honesty and just all of the work that you do. Because what Odell and I try to do is expose that a life interruption can sometimes be traumatic or it can just be an interruption in our lives that can be temporary and sometimes permanent as well. So we'll continue to discuss the impact of trauma and how a moment in time can sometimes interrupt what's happening in our lives, but we have to learn to pivot from that and not stay stuck where we are. Uh, today's podcast, Justice for All, looks at the conversations about uh, not necessarily, we, I, I know we called you younger, young men, but, but not necessarily looking at your age, but just looking at the fact that you're new organizations, but you are still fighting for the same justice for everyone. So we appreciate that. We appreciate all of the work, the hard work that you're doing. And Chaz, I hear what you're saying and about the decisions that the young people might make if you are not there. But I also encourage you and Kurt that you do have to, I'm going to use Kurt's phrase, you have to unplug for a minute um, because you have to, if you, you have to take care of yourselves because if you do not do that, then who's going to continue to do the work that you are doing? And then to our audience, please remember to like and subscribe to our station. (laughs) And then share this message because definitely, definitely someone you know may need to hear it. So thank you and thank you both. Chaz and Kurt, thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, We're going to love to have you back. Love to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.